This is a story about being depressed, trying to power right through it, and that not being ultimately effective, because that's not how depression works. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. I recently talked to a guy who dealt with some pretty bad depression when he was struggling with his career. And then his career started going great, and he kept struggling with depression. He's a writer, director, and actor who still can't quite believe he's become a big success. My name is Mark Duplass. I'm a filmmaker. I am uh, weirdly in New York City in the 36th floor of a Four Seasons hotel uh, overlooking um, a really foggy, beautiful Central Park. Mark Duplass and his brother Jay Duplass have made films like Jeff Who Lives at Home, Baghead, Cyrus. Mark also starred in the FX series The League and stars in a new series, The Morning Show, on Apple TV+. Here's Mark in the brothers' first feature-length film, 2005's The Puffy Chair. Mark plays a guy who goes to great lengths to acquire a replica of his dad's puffy chair. He's sending it down the street to a guy who does reupholstering. He got us a priority on the dude's list. Um, it's going to be ready in the morning. And how much is that going to cost? Um, it's not much. It's good. Overnight reupholstery service is yeah. so expensive to do that whole job in one he night. He gave me money. We're good. How much did he give you? 300 bucks. What? What did you say to him? What? What did you say to him that convinced him to give you $300? What do you think I said to him? Why are you so defensive? You're, I was just asking what you said. I'm not defensive. You're like insinuating like I'm some sort of... I wasn't insinuating yeah, anything. No, I wasn't. I just asked what you said to him. The Puffy Chair premiered at Sundance, was released in theaters, and put the brothers at the forefront of a new movement in film called Mumblecore. Low-budget, naturalistic movies with a lot of improvised dialogue spoken by characters who are sometimes confused or troubled. Mark grew up in suburban New Orleans. I think if you were a friend of mine who knew me my whole life, you would say, I don't perceive you as a depressed or anxious person, Mark. I see you as this unbelievably confident kid bounding through the world and taking it in his hands and doing what he wanted with it. Um, and that is kind of true. Um, and it's also true that I think it wasn't until my sort of mid-20s when it got so bad that it started stopping me from doing all the things that I wanted to do and, and got to near breakdown levels before I was able to rebuild. His parents were loving and supportive. Mark and his brother Jay were and are very close. They started making movies as young kids. Objectively, he had a good life. But I can look back now, knowing what I know, um, and having gone through a lot of therapy and all those things that, that one does, um, and I can see moments when I was seven or eight years old, and I would wake up and I would tell my parents, I don't know if I ate enough dinner last night. And they would say, what do you mean? And I would say, 
my stomach feels so empty. I don't feel like I have the energy to get out of bed and go to school. I had, of course, eaten dinner. I just didn't know that that was the despair and exhaustion of depression that was happening at that age. And I would cobble it together and, and make it happen and go run around and get enough endorphins and adrenaline to make it through. And luckily it wasn't as bad for me and it was a little more sporadic. Um, but that kind of feeling kept coming and going through adolescence, through puberty, all those things. Um, and then I think I started having my first panic attacks when I was 17 or 18 and didn't know what those were because it just wasn't in my family. And I don't blame anybody for it. They just, you know, this is the 90s. People were just not as hip to it. And we were in Louisiana where, you know, it's not like you're in California where everybody's all over it all the time. What did the panic attacks feel like what, in your body? What did they do? They they presented themselves at, to me in my brain as I must have eaten something terrible. <laughs> That's really what I always thought. So my, it's funny, now that I'm talking about this, my early depression symptoms presented themselves as some sort of food-related illness. <laughs> Gastrointestinal. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's all I knew how to relate. You know, I, I remember feeling lightheaded and dizzy and my body was buzzing and I had trouble breathing and I kind of felt like I might throw up or pass out. And anybody who's grown up in... Uh, the South and had some bad shellfish. I mean, look, it's not that dissimilar. And again, I had no reason to believe in the lore of how people knew me and how I viewed myself, that I was the kind of person who would be affected by something like this. I was, I was athletic. I was in shape. I was getting great grades. I like had girlfriends and was playing in bands and I was pretty popular. I was pretty together for a, a high school kid, you know? Um, so it didn't, occur to me to to look to that. When you had those panic attacks around 17 or 18, was that tied to like, now it's time to be a grown up, now it's time to go off and- Yeah, move, it move has to home. be, right? I think. Yeah, I, I didn't uh, identify it that way at the time, but um, I'm sure it was that. We have a very close family. My brother's four years older than me. Um, we're very close. We were close then. When he left from college, he had a hard time adjusting. Um, so I'm sure that had something to, to do with it. Jay Duplass had gone to the University of Texas in Austin, and Mark followed four years later. And had a really good time in, in college. It was a really great environment. Austin in the 90s, you know, was quite different than it is now. It was pretty sleepy before the big tech invasion. And you know, all those wonderful independent musicians and filmmakers had set the tone for that place, which is, you know, it's not really about becoming a massive success and moving to Los Angeles or New York and blowing up your art so that the world can perceive it. It's about trying to find a way to make $7,000 a year at the grocery store so you can make your weird art with your friends on the weekends. And that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me for the modeling of an artistic career. Um, and it set it as an attainable goal and something that didn't freak me out too much so I could kind of blossom slowly and comfortably there. I think if I had moved to New York or L.A. at 18, it might have been pretty rough for me. Instead, he moved to New York in his 20s for a while and did not focus on making movies. Yeah, I was always doing music and movie stuff. You know, I it's weird. This is like a part of my life that I don't talk about a lot, but... I primarily identified as a singer-songwriter from the ages of 
14 or 15 um, until I was in my early 20s. And I released two independently made records and I would press my own CDs on my own label and I would book like four month long tours and live out of my van and sell CDs out of my van. This was like, you know, before everything, before, you know, MP3s were around where you're just like doing it. Um, and, um, and that was, that was great. I really enjoyed it, you know, but again, I can look back and now that I've, I've been through therapy, I understand what it was. I was this kind of lonely kid living out of a van for four months in a row. Sometimes I'd go like three or four days without talking to anyone. Um, and I just, I had this seminal understanding that, hey, you chose an impossible career path. You know, you chose to be a musician or a filmmaker. So you better work your ass off. You better do everything you you possibly can to make it. And um, so I wouldn't allow those kind of elements of burgeoning anxiety, depression to take me down. I would just pummel through them. And I now know how unhealthy it was to not uh, validate those emotions at all. But at the same time, you know, there are lots of tactics for transcending your your mood swings. And, you know, one thing that, that can be helpful as long as you do it in moderation is um, muscling through it a little bit. I just muscled through the whole time and that was not healthy. Mark's solo music is hard to find online, but he used one of his songs later in the movie Safety Not Guaranteed with Aubrey Plaza. It's... Please. No, it's not. It's not finished, and it's really just not very good. So. Well, I'll tell you if it's good or not. Okay. It's only halfway done, so it's just like... As Mark said, muscling through tough emotional times is a fine instinct for some moments. He tried to muscle through all moments. And I think I weirdly have a lot of um, fortitude. Um, so when, when depression and anxiety manifests in me, my dad has a great way of describing it now. He's like, look, you've got, you've got your two speeds. You have go and you have crash, you know? Um, and, um, and I can really kind of hold it together and hold the pedal down almost to a fault so that um, when, I, when I falter or whatever you want to call it from depression or anxiety, it's in my 20s, it was much more of a case of, oh, you know, it, it wasn't the case where you'd say, I'm a little down, I need to go into self-care mode and have two days. It was, 
run into a brick wall and not know what is happening, you know, wake up and really feel kind of, I, I can't get myself out of bed, you know. Touring for months on end by yourself and living in a van is not the best thing in the world for someone with latent depression. But come on, it still sounds kind of rad. You know, weirdly now, I, I sort of miss it in the way that, you know, people talk about like, you know, those days in Nam, you know, <laughs> like they were hard, but I miss them, you know, not to equate touring uh, to war. Let me be very careful and clear about that. Sure. But but um, it was a hard time that I oddly am nostalgic for. Um, it wasn't until uh, I would say I was about 23 or 24 when my depression started to manifest itself in physical pain um, that things got really hard for me. My my arms and my neck and my shoulders all started to get these repetitive stress injuries from playing so intensely for so long. And all the Western doctors would say, yeah, you've been you've been tenaciously playing acoustic guitar since you were 10 years old. You injured yourself. And of course, all the Eastern doctors would say, well, this is emotional pain and you haven't dealt with this and you got to figure this out. And so that changed my life quite a bit because I couldn't play acoustic guitar anymore without pain. So I had to make a move. I think both the Western and Eastern doctors had a point, and certainly there was pain. But Mark did what Mark does. He made some adjustments and then tried to push through. And I had a little apartment in Greenpoint with three or four roommates and paying $300 a month and getting by. And, um, and what I decided to do was sort of go underground and, and uh, you know, I mean, I mean that from a creative sense, stop touring. And, and I found a new way around playing music. I would play this light, sensitive touch, old Casio keyboard. And I started writing songs for that. And I went to music school to learn how to compose. And, um, and I started a new band that I could play without pain, but was still not a dealing with the issues. Went back out on tour, released another couple of records, still dealing with all that emotional pain and all that depression stuff. And and then at the same time was becoming a filmmaker. He'd been making short films with his brother Jay the whole time, way before the puffy chair. These were very low-budget affairs. Perhaps none as low-budget as This Is John. It was a $3 movie that we shot in our kitchen in Austin, Texas, when I was 24 and my brother was 28. We shot it on our parents' video camera um, with no lighting other than what was in the kitchen and no external microphone. Um, my brother filmed it and I improvised it. And it was a story of a man trying to perfect the outgoing greeting of his answering machine, which for those of you who have never used an answering machine, was an actual box for your home telephone uh, <laughs> for your voicemail greeting. And um, uh, what had led to this is that my brother and I had been struggling to make a good film for years, really beating our heads against the wall, failing. And we had just come off of a somewhat sizable failure and we're feeling like it might be time to give up on movies. And I just said, you know what? Let's get back to how we were when we were little. Let's just make a movie without thinking about it too much. We're overthinking everything. You film, I'll act like we did when we were seven and 11. And um, and I told Jay, I was like, I'm going to 7-Eleven to get a tape. You come up with a story and I'm gonna, and I, you better have one when I come back. Is that the $3, the tape that you bought at 7-Eleven? That was it. That was okay. the $3. Um, 
And he said, uh, when I got back, he said, I don't have a story, but I do have an inkling of something interesting. He said, you know, when I was trying to get the outgoing greeting right, um, actually, it was for the casting session for the movie that we had made that had just failed, which cost us $50,000 of money we had saved working as editors, but that is an entirely different depressing story. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he said, I had a really hard time doing it and I kind of got emotional um, that I couldn't get it right. And something in me just clicked. I just said, oh my God, that is really funny. And that is really sad and it's very us. And so I just, I just went out the door right away. I said, I'm, I'm going out the door, just start filming and I'm just gonna start doing it, you know? Hi, this is John. Hi, this is John Ashford. This is John Ashford at 512. Hi, this is John. Hello, you've reached John Ashford at 512-443-9321. I'm sorry I've missed your call. Please leave me your name and number, and I will return your call as soon as possible. Hi, this is John Ashford at 512-416-9754. I'm sorry I missed your call. Please leave me your name and number, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you. And so I improvised a 20-minute take. We cut it down to eight minutes, and that was our first Sundance movie. It is, I guess, surprising that an eight-minute improvised film about a guy recording an answering machine greeting could get into Sundance. But This Is John is pretty remarkable for what happens in this tight, close-up, one-take story. Something that struck me, as I was, I'd seen it before, and I watched it again just yesterday, and... Uh, the the breakdown that John, your character, has um, <laughs> yeah. was like it, it's it starts out kind of funny and then it gets really unnerving yeah. and painful. Okay, okay, okay. Come on. Hi, this is John. Um. Were you expecting that you would go to that place or was that genuinely what the actor was feeling in the moment? Yeah, Jay and I talked a lot about that when it happened because it, you know, it wasn't something I was totally expecting. And, and it was certainly um, wasn't what happened to Jay, but it was an inkling of what he felt. And, you know, I always tell young filmmakers or young artists when they ask me, like, God, how do I look to, like, what I'm going to be good at. Like, where do I start in terms of the subject matter, you know? And I always say there's, there's usually a conversation you have with, you have with a loved one or a best friend or someone it's two in the morning, you're really exhausted 
you're very vulnerable, you're very real, and you're giggling about something and then suddenly it gets serious. And we've all had those moments. And um, for me and Jay, I think this is John, you know, not to get too analytical about it, but there was an issue of, of identity, uh, of an issue of presenting ourselves to the world a certain way and hoping that we would be liked uh, or at the very least accepted for it because we, we went to a Jesuit high school in New Orleans. And I don't know if you know anything about those schools, but there can be a little pressure cookery and, and it's an all boys school and it's a Southern school where everybody thinks all the boys are the smartest things. And, and it's, if you get out of Jesuit, you're supposed to go to a great school and just start making money, you know? And at this point in our careers, I'm 24, Jay's 28. We are broke. And we graduated like summa cum laude near the top of our class with honors. And all of our friends are making six figures. And we're kind of ashamed. And it used to be cute that like Mark and Jay are going off to fulfill their artsy fartsy career. But now it's getting kind of sad. <laughs> and, and we were scared. And so I think all of that fear, sadness, shame um, was starting to come out in This Is John. And it emboldened us to understand that that was a valid subject matter that we could make art about. Yeah. And that that's sort of going to that, that deeper place and that deeper vulnerability kind of has stayed with your films ever since. It really has. And, you know, we didn't, we, it took us longer than I think it takes some artists to tap into what we felt that we uniquely had to offer. But in that moment, Jay and I squarely understood and we've gotten better at talking about it um, as, as we've gone on. But I think our instincts knew um, that that portion of ourselves that was capable of facing the darkness inside of us, having a sense of humor about it while at the same time honoring the sadness that it was, allowing those two feelings to coexist was, um, you know, at the very least, uh, our, it was going to be our special sauce for a little while, you know, because people seem to really um, connect to it. Music is great, but the signs were pointing in a pretty obvious direction. Well, I can't keep going out on tour and have a successful film career, because at that point I'd had a couple of short films at Sundance. I was working very closely with my brother. I was dating my girlfriend, who is now my wife, Katie, and, and you know, maintaining that type of intimacy on the road while you're away 100 days, 180 days a year, is, it's impossible, you know? So, um, so I gave up the music thing to pursue film full time and, and things looked very good for me. You know, I was making money. The studio system was hiring me to write things. I moved to LA. It was a more comfortable environment to be in and the sunshine and, you know, just my body wasn't all crunched up and sad in the New York brown snow. I was out in the sunshine. Um, but again, that thing that I'd never really dealt with was, was still in me, uh, that depressive and that anxious person. People want to work with Mark, opportunity abounding. He's no longer broke, far from it. But if you don't deal with your depression, your depression will show up and make you deal with it. And then when I was 27 is when I, I had what I would first call like, you know, uh, I think it's fair to call it a breakdown. Hear how that all played out in a moment. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We obviously have some laughs on this show. Just look at the name of the show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying it a little bit, make it not so scary. Let's not kid ourselves, though. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It could be an awkward conversation, sure, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use in those conversations. What to say, what not to say. Stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. I'm not sure how my memoir would look as a Duplass Brothers movie, but I know it turned out great as a book. That book, conveniently titled The Hilarious World of Depression, easy to remember, comes out in May but is available for pre-order now. It's hilarious and not really all that depressing. It's the story of how I came to be who I am and the road to how The Hilarious World of Depression, this podcast, came to exist. Plenty of appearances by some of your favorite guests from the show. To pre-order the book, go to hilariousworld.org. Back with Mark Duplass, when last we left, he had been a poor and struggling musician and a poor and struggling filmmaker. Then the movies that he made with his brothers start to really take off. He has money, critical acclaim, and he has a breakdown. It hit me so hard that for about a month, I was convinced my life was never going to be the same. And I know people who have experienced this, know that moment when it really hits you big for the first time and you think, well, this is it. I don't think I'm ever going to be normal again. I don't know if I'm ever going to get back. I'm broken now. I am done. Yes. And were you in LA for that? I was in LA. I was with my sweet, wonderful wife, Katie, who was just my girlfriend at the time. So she's like, you know, great. I got a wet mop here. <laughs> what are we going to do? And, and she, you know, she grew up in New England and she didn't have all the, all the loosey goosey new age skills to deal with this stuff. It was new to us, you know? And I was very resistant to medication. I was like, I'm going to do this on my own. I wouldn't even take Xanax or, or any sort of anti-anxiety pill, you know? And I did what I did. I tried to transcend and I, I went on a, you know, a strict regimen of getting as much exercise as my limited energy could get it to try and get my endorphins going, eating only organic foods. When I could get them down, I would have a hard time eating. I was so nauseous and exhausted from the anxiety. Try to sleep as many hours as I could. Went to see a psychiatrist, went to see a therapist, started to learn some skills there. Um, and I can't remember who it was, but it may have been my psychiatrist it, they just said something and it just was like a light bulb. It went off for me. It was so clear, you know, they just said, I'm watching you destroy yourself in every possible way with this strict regimen. And that's great. You should be working hard and you're only getting to about 35 to 40% of the relative, uh, happiness and life ease that, that you want and that you deserve. And I, 
promise you that there is a chance, I can't promise you that it will happen, but there is a good chance if you take this little magic pill in addition to all the work you're doing, it's going to change everything for you. But I was stuck on that stigma. And I don't know if if you've experienced that at all personally sure. or in talking to people, you've you've talked to people about the the stigma of the antidepressant and what that meant for me as a Southern male with a certain amount of ego, certain amount of, I should be able to do this on my own. I had willed everything else into existence at that point in my life. And I, and I just felt like a failure. And I felt like this is, I can't, I, I couldn't let myself do it. Um, but when that, when that was told to me and that clicked in, I decided to give it a try. Um, and, um, and about two weeks later, I'll never forget it. I mean, it was, um, it was like a moment in a movie. I was just sitting in my bed and it was like a fog just lifted, about half of it, you know? And, and I was like, oh my God, here I am again. And it's that moment when, that people sometimes talk about with physical injuries where they say, Jesus, I didn't realize how bad my leg was hurting until it stopped hurting, you know? And I didn't realize how bad it was until it lifted. Was it again physical like it had been in the past? Were you getting those gastrointestinal pains again? No, it was much stronger and much more acute and a much more, you know, um, truly anxiety-based before it presented as depression in me. You know, I, I'm kind of one of the people who believes that they're, you know, just different sides of the same coin and how do they present in you? Um, and um, it presented as this massive fear because I can look back now and I can say, oh, I had found the career that I was good at. I had found a way to monetize it and become stable. I had found the girl that I wanted to marry and the city I wanted to live in. And I think I had manifested this, this anxiety back into my life because I thought to myself, oh my God, I now know what the path is and how horrible would it be if the anxiety was the thing to actually take me down right at, right at the time when I'm just about to blossom, you know? So it's that kind of thing where you where you see the shark out in the ocean and you say, how terrible would it be if it bit me and you just find yourself drifting towards it, you know? <laughs> right towards um, it, yeah. And I, I think that's what I was doing, you know? And a lot of people do that. Um, and so it, it, was, it was a crippling anxiety, you know? Um, irrational fears of everything, hard to go outside, hard to eat, no energy, you know? Um, and uh, it eventually started to present a little bit more as depression a few months later. Um, before I actually got on uh, on the medication. Remember, all this came along after his career had really picked up. The pressure was on. The puffy chair was critically acclaimed. I had signed a big writing deal with Universal and one with Fox Searchlight. And um, we were getting ready to go make another movie. And um, so I think that you know, it's, it's always hard to tell exactly what it was, but the rising tide of everything my life could be um, and the, the prospect that I could lose it to depression because I didn't understand it was something you could really beat back or at least get a, get a, a handle on um, was, was really scary, you know. Um, so it definitely took me down. Mark got aggressive, not just about making movies and TV, but about figuring out how his mind worked, how his anxiety and depression operated. He's 42 now. I'm doing pretty well. You know, that was about um, 15 years ago now, 14, 15 years ago. 
Um, and I think that you can look at a, a nice sine cosine wave of my life that is <laughs> having its ups and downs on a median, but we are generally trending upward. Um, and um, I was certainly scared um, when we had our first daughter when I was 30, that the sleep deprivation, the, the sort of, you know, um, inherent life imbalance that comes with raising a small child might throw me off. Um, and, and there were, there were, it's, there were its ups and downs and there were times when I would have to kind of shamefully and with a little embarrassment, look at my wife and say, I know you were up breastfeeding last night, but I'm starting to feel, I call it the, the wooginess is my term for it that en encompasses depression and anxiety. I said, I know the woog is coming and I kind of need to sleep in. And I feel like such an asshole asking you to get up with our daughter after you address it, but I, this is something I need. And she was very, very good about that. So I got a little better about asking for those things when it was important. Of course, as any listener to this program knows, as anyone who has dealt with mental illness knows, you don't solve these things once and then forget about them. Mark's mindful about the future, and he's had some slip-ups in the past. I did make, in my mind, a mistake about a year into my medication when it was working great. I thought, well, it's been nine months. A lot of doctors say you can just come right off of this and you've retrained your brain and you don't need your SSRIs anymore. Um, and so I tried to wean myself off slowly with the doctor's, you know, um, blessing. And I got down to about 25% of my dose and I knew it wasn't enough, but I still had that small part of me that wanted to be the Southern male hero who didn't need his meds, you know? And I, um, so I had another Another sort of mini crash. It wasn't the great stock market crash of 19, but it was a mini crash, um, a pullback, if you will. Um, and luckily, I was able to have some more skills, you know, a good therapist, be able to use things like Klonopin and Xanax to help me get back up while I re-upped my dose. And, and now I'm staying there. And, you know, I don't know... It's 14 years later, and if you're sitting with me and my psychiatrist, you'll you'll hear him say, look, you could probably get off the medications after 14 years. I'm not sure they're actually chemically doing anything any for you anymore, you know? But I like having them there. I don't know if it's placebo, but um, I don't have as many side effects as a lot of people have, and, and uh, it feels like a little net that's there to catch me in the event something happens, so I, I, I stay on them. Were you afraid of that that kind of artist trope of oh if I if I get on meds then I won't be creative anymore? You know I wasn't, and I I was aware of that, and I certainly thought um, this could affect me in a scene as an actor if I'm not able to access the wild flowing tears that are often required, and if I'm honest, I think that there probably is a little bit of a curb on that, or it's a little harder for me. And I have to be a little more careful and preparatory to, to reach that place. But for me, that is a direct acknowledgement of, thank God that place is not so easily accessible on a hairpin right. turn, because that means I'm leading a more balanced and uh, even keel life. Yeah. Um, Thank God it's not happening at the Rite Aid instead. Exactly. You got it, man. So that's a worthy trade in my opinion. And, and I do have to say, like, um, I'm one of the lucky ones that the medication worked really well for. Relatively low side effects. And they just, 
they work for me. And it sounds like it helped for you as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, but creatively, the weird thing is, and I do think this is important to talk about for anyone who fears that this is only my experience, but if anything, it has made me into the best version of my creative self because all of my crazy dreamlike unfettered activity, um, in that side of my brain is still alive and well. Um, and I can still access it without it crashing me. And the medication has given me a balance and a fortitude that I didn't have before in order to be on the rails with the other side of my brain to get organized, to stay in, stay in the writing session an hour or two longer and be a little bit tougher to get it right when I needed to, to have um, the confidence and, and the, I would say, just the sort of 30,000 foot awareness of my life and the process because my brain space isn't fully um, consumed with with fear and and sort of um, you know itty bitty anxieties. So I really, to me, it's if if you're talking to one of my friends right now, I know what they would tell you. They would say Mark was a really good creative force, and then he got on medication and he became a superhero. Like the way he can do things creatively now. And I know this kind of sounds like bragging, but. I guess I want to stamp this hard for anyone who is fearful that the medication could be bad for them in that part. And to give you an example of at least one person where it went quite the opposite direction. Um, and I'm able to make lots of projects and, and still stay on my feet. And so I feel like I'm kind of on the creative front, getting the best of myself. And the medication is a big part of that for me. In 2015, the series Togetherness debuted on HBO, created by Mark and Jay with their friend Steve Zissis. Nearly all 16 episodes written and directed by Mark and Jay. The show's about middle-aged couples trying to figure out how to navigate life. Melanie Linsky plays Mark's wife, and in this scene, she's cheated on him and they've separated. Um, was, it, was there something specific you wanted to talk about? Um, Sure. Um, it's been a couple of weeks, and I think um, I just wanted to kind of see where you're at. Where I'm at? Well, I mean, what what are we doing? It's just confusing, and yeah. Yeah, it's definitely confusing. Well, you know, like, Sophie asked me why you're not sleeping at home. But you, you're supposed to tell her I'm working nights. That's what we talked about. Yeah. That was the... No, I've been telling her that, but... So what's the problem? For, like, two weeks, well, she's smart is the problem. Um, it wasn't directly autobiographical from a story point standpoint, but emotionally, I would say it was fairly autobiographical for, for both me and Jay. The truth is we were, we were in both of those characters, in my character and, and Steve Zissis's character, and actually in... In, in both the female characters as well. Um, you know, togetherness marked a really good um, point in my life where I started to realize my limits. Um, and in the attempt to write every episode with Jay, direct every episode with Jay, produce it, act in it, you know, um, 
and try to be a present father and a good husband and friend and a, and a good son to my parents who live in town. Um, that was way too much for me. Um, and, um, I can't say why I felt the need to do all of those things at that time. Um, you know, there's the one obvious answer, which is, well, when you grow up in the suburbs of Louisiana and you never thought you'd ever have a chance at all to make any kind of a dent in the industry and you're provided with a buffet, you're just going to eat the shit out of everything at the buffet. Um, And that's kind of what I was doing. And I didn't know how to set limits for myself. Um, But a a larger thing was happening there too, which was the sort of, it was the beginning of the conscious uncoupling of me and Jay as soulmates, as inextricable life partners that we had been forever um, and, and us moving towards our wives and our children and trying to figure out how to create space for ourselves, um, which was an extremely difficult process. And the, the cancellation of togetherness after season two and the dissolution of that show gave us an opportunity and a starting point for us to be brave enough to say to each other, God, I love you so much. Um, but I think that we need to have some space. And uh, we would alternately, you know, basically it was always a a case of, uh, you know, I love you so much, um, don't go away, or, you know, how dare you go away. Um, And, uh, and that was hard for us to kind of, kind of figure out that that split. Um, But I think that ultimately was really, really healthy, um, and something that needed to happen. And I think that we were unhappy towards the end of making togetherness. Everything was working great in all aspects of our lives. Things were good with our family, but we were working too hard. And, um, and Jay and I had to, we had to learn, I don't know if you've ever dealt with anything like that, but, um, we sort of had to learn to let go of this old vision of our relationship and try to create something new. And it's very difficult, in my opinion, to be ex-soulmates with someone, yet uh. still be intimate with them, you know? Because it's kind of like a demotion um, and it feels strange and your old rhythms are still intact. And um, I imagine it's something like when people break up after a marriage, but try to be really close friends, you know? Um, something's lacking. Can you still have intimacy? And we're still in that rebuilding phase. We had Charlene de Guzman on our show a few episodes ago. She talked about making her movie unlovable with the help and guidance of Mark Duplass. Having gone from struggling broke filmmaker to Hollywood success has given Mark a chance to help people who are trying to climb that same ladder. And I wonder what that does to you. I wonder how you manage that, given that's such an emotional high stakes thing for everybody else involved. It's a really great question, and I appreciate it because, you know, it is um, 
high class problem, right? Uh, a yeah. lot of people um, want to be around me and and um, and join forces with me to make art, right? Boo hoo! Sure. <laughs> but but yes, it is complex. Um, I have tremendous survivor's guilt um, as a person who struggled creatively, as a person who was on the floor, as an anxious depressive. Um, and who now lives a very well-balanced and happy life. And I can say that totally confidently. Um, and so when I see anyone struggling, not only creatively, not only with depression or anxiety, but with both, the only thing I want to do is say, God, I want to do whatever is in my power to save you or help you. Um, but I also know through therapy that um, that is not a way that I can spend all of my time and energy. So I have to sort of, and it's not good for everyone in the long run to do that. There are certain cases where it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, ultimately what I've come to realize is that a lot of the best thing I can do for people is give them a short and intense period of time and energy um, and give them a set of skills and that one or two sort of leg up to get them started and going and then hope that they can do it from there. And um, in the case of, you know, uh, Charlene de Guzman, you know, we went pretty far with it. You know, I helped her build this story and, and I gave her the money to make her movie. But, but, but look, at the end of the day, I wasn't on set every day, you know, uh, helping her out. She, I, it was definitely a lead a horse to water thing and, and she did it and she made it. And that was a really good, a good example of when it worked well. Mark says that his anxiety and depression and getting help for those things, all that has helped in his work, but more importantly, has helped in his life. If you knew me when I was younger, I think you'd be surprised at who I am now. Um, because, again, look, uh, I grew up in the South. I grew up in this sort of male-dominated patriarchy of this uh the, the power structure of New Orleans and the, and the Jesuit high school there, you know? And there was a big ego that came with that. And I wasn't the most empathetic or sympathetic person in the world growing up. And uh, getting taken to your knees like I have been um, by nothing other than your own vulnerability and weakness has certainly made me a better friend, a better actor, because I can identify with that more, and a lot more fun to hang out with, honestly, because I was kind of... <laughs> I was kind of cocky and ego-centered, and, um, and in the long run, this has been very good for me to, uh, I don't know, just, you know, Jay, Jay always says, my brother, he's just like, man, he's like, I know it sucks for you when you're having a more anxious time, but it's great for me because you're just so human and sweet and kind of like <laughs> a little puddle, and I just love being around you when you're like that, you know? The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Our digital producer is Christina Lopez. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. Our intern is Ariana Wilson. Recording engineers for this episode, Whitney Jones in New York and Veronica Rodriguez in St. Paul. Technical directors, Anna Haverman and Corey Schreppel. Mark Duplass's old band was called Volcano I'm Still Excited. The exclamation point is part of the name, so that's why I had to holler. 
Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitokay.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. Makeitokay.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say and what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at makeitokay.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook, too. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. I'm still excited. Bye now. Doc, that's the problem. What if I was to tell you I'm Paiachi? This great big smile is just for show. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know